Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with Glossy's international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. Zofia, how are you? Very good, thank you. Lovely to be on again. This is actually our last Week in Review episode of the year. We've got one more year in review special episode, but other than that, this is the last you will hear from the Week in Review until January. Um, And we have a fun episode. We're going to be talking about the growth of some fast fashion brands like Zara and Shein. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about uh, this report from Morgan Stanley that showed young adults are driving a lot of the growth of luxury in the U.S. and the U.K. And then finally, we will talk about Gucci coming to Pity Womo um, next year, which will be their first show without Alessandro Michele. Let's start with the Inditex, uh, Zara, Chian kind of topic, sort of a big, you know, conglomeration of of different ideas. But the reason I wanted to talk about this, Inditex, which is the owner of Zara, along with a bunch of other brands, posted really good profits this week. It's like 24% increase in profit, 20% increase in sales from last year. Um, They're like the biggest fashion retailer in the world, and they're doing so well. Um, And I wanted to kind of bring that up alongside Shein, which is also, I mean, we don't even need to say, is like this massive world-dominating force. Um, what I wanted to ask you about, Zofia, is like these fast fashion companies are doing so well. They're making so much money. And yet in my in my reporting, when I'm talking to people in the fashion industry, everyone, I think maybe wishful thinking is like fast fashion is dying or should be dying or whatever. And people should be embracing slow fashion or whatever and all this stuff. But like that does not seem to be uh, holding up. All those companies are doing insanely well. Shein has completely taken over the world, even though everyone knows it's like bad for the environment and all this other stuff. What do you, what do you make of the kind of contradiction there, where like everybody knows and says what should be happening, which is we should buy better quality stuff and not this fast fashion garbage that doesn't last long, and yet everybody's buying it seemingly. I think, honestly, you know, it it goes back to kind of very simple consumer psychology. It's just the fact that, you know, if you're able to buy something and buy something cheap and quickly and it fulfills like that specific desire for a trend or something that's going on in fashion, there has been a growth of these micro trends driven by TikTok and other platforms. Um, Then, you know, especially for, you know, a younger generation, I think that Zara and Shein just satisfies that that kind of shopping urge and you know especially now when you know there's been a lot more talks around the recession economy like lower consumer spend like even though technically investment pieces are better value over time they do cost more upfront and I think it's that upfront cost right now that is stopping consumers from picking those higher-end products and going somewhere you know kind of more um, towards these fast fashion labels because they're simply able to get more um, you know for their money and it's just about quantity um, so I think that that's what's driving that interest in Zara and Shein um, I think that you know with Shein like the were very well known for like discounting and like excessive discounting as well so it's not like I think it's Boohoo who did like a one pound bikini at one point um a pound so like I don't know four dollars um (laughs) but basically it's the same kind of thing with um Zara it's a constant stream of product and discounts that makes it very kind of addictive behavior and Shein's already kind of gone into um dark patterns which are kind of like a marketing style where essentially you're 
changing people's perception of things to make seem more appealing, like certain areas of the website, um, certain types of products, the way that it's displayed. Um, it all goes back to that. But I think at the moment, it's just mainly that all of these brands are just winning in terms of having that instant quick response to, to that shopping impulse. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the microtrends, and that was something I hadn't thought of, but you're right. I mean, um, if you're on TikTok or even, you know, any of the other places where the, the trends come and go, I feel like the trend cycle has gotten so much faster. Stuff goes in and out of fashion so quickly that a slow fashion brand can't really respond. And so a lot of those brands that are, quote unquote, slow fashion are kind of these timeless basic or kind of seasonless product, which is nice. And I, a lot of people like them, but it's never going to capitalize on those really, you know, flash in the pan trends the way that something like Shein can, when they can make an entire new thing in two days or whatever and have it shipped, you know, by the end of the week. So that that definitely seems like a big um, a big strength for them. Uh, I did notice in, in my reading about Zara and Inditex that Zara has done a little bit of venturing into higher price points, slightly kind of more elevated stuff, but it doesn't seem like that is what's driving the growth. You know, the it seems very firmly, like you said, low price point, and I'm sure inflation is a part of it too. People have less money to spend. Um, just, you know, going for whatever's cheapest. You, you, you like can't blame people, especially when they're, you know, when things are hard and everything else is so expensive to just like want to buy stuff cheaper. I mean, I always think of that with resale because I've talked to people at like the Real Real or, or Vestiaire Collective and they always hype up um, the sustainability of buying secondhand. And I'm sure that's a part of it. But I think for a lot of people, it's just you can just get the same thing cheaper. That's such a powerful motivating factor. So I think that's a part of it as well. Um, any other thoughts on Zara and Shein and fast fashion and all that stuff? Yeah, I think what you said about vestiaire and kind of the secondhand and resale aspect is really interesting. Like it's something that has grown as well, like almost kind of in a similar way to the interest in Shein and Zara over the years. Like obviously it's not as mass, um, but it's definitely something that's also growing. So I think that there will come some kind of a tipping point where that interest in all of these new products from places like, you know, like Zara and Shein won't be as kind of appealing. And I'm wondering as well, like this might be just a hypothetical, but I'm wondering as um, kind of virgin material prices um, go up and possibly like these brands have to end up putting their prices up, um, you know, meaning that fast fashion won't be as cheap as it is um, now. Maybe at that point, resale will become, you know, an even bigger part of that market. And perhaps at that point, it will start to take up some of that fast fashion share. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing is I've noticed in just talking to fashion people, um, whether it's coworkers or, or people I meet out at fashion stuff, sometimes you ask someone what they're wearing or even they volunteer it and they might say, oh, and this is, and then whisper, Zara or something, you know, like they're almost <laughs> embarrassed, but maybe not that embarrassed. Um, but there's there's definitely an element, like people know that it's like maybe bad to buy something from Shein or something, but again, they still do it anyway. So um I don't really know what to make of that beyond what we've said. I'm, I I don't know if there's a solution. Like you said, resale could be a good alternative. I, I'm trying to buy more stuff secondhand if I'm looking for a bargain rather than buying from H&M or something. Um, but that's it's, it's really hard to do. So 
then conversely, the second topic I want to talk about, I feel like is actually kind of related to the first one, but there was a Bloomberg report earlier this week uh, writing about some data from Morgan Stanley that young adults in the U.S. and the U.K. are driving a lot of the growth of luxury. Um, they cited, uh, the Bloomberg report cited some census data in the U.S. that uh, more than half of young adults in the U.S. are living with their parents still, which is the highest it's been since like the 1940s. And Morgan Stanley attributed that to, or attributed the growth of luxury to that. People, young people especially, living at home, saving money there, and then having extra income to spend on luxury stuff. Um, especially Swiss watches, stuff like Cartier or Tiffany jewelry has all been uh, doing extremely well in the U.S. And, um, you know, I, I think a big part of that is inflation just doesn't hit their customer as much because their customer is already very wealthy. But what do you make of the idea of young people living at home and then having extra income? Does that, it doesn't sound true to me, but I guess they've got the data and I don't. But what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, it's a tough one because like I, on the other one hand, like I do get it. And I think that, yes, like young people are tending to move back in with the parents because the cost of living is so high. I think that, you know, if you're looking at bigger microeconomic trends, I think that um, a lot of young people are losing the hope of owning a home. Um, so I think maybe having some of these luxury goods products that they can invest in or buy into is basically a more accessible price point than something that would have typically been, you know, a kind of aspirational thing to aim for, like a house previously. But that might be looking far, far too far into it. And people might just be, you know, spending more um, after the pandemic, um, looking to mm -hmm. kind of let loose a little bit I think um obviously coming up to Christmas I think that a lot of those um party sales have been boosted by that so I would expect that you know in terms of investment pieces or jewelry it might just be going the same way I'm hoping that you know these kind of stats will even themselves out next year um and that it won't kind of be the case no longer where they're actually spending so much on this I think it might just be more of a blip um and it's mm -hmm. something that has is happening this year because of the fact that people are simply going back to you know um shopping in the traditional way doing more kind of experience things focusing on what they want to be investing in yeah, you you mentioned something, and I wanted to ask in the in the U.S. I feel like there's definitely a strong feeling among young people, um, even up to my age. I'm almost thirty. Um, of the idea of owning a house is almost laughable. Like that's <laughs> just never going to happen. Um, does the U.K. Do you think there's kind of that same feeling? Is it as bad in the U.K. Because in the U.S. it's horrible. I mean, home prices if, where I live in New York City, it's like ridiculous. You don't even want to look. Yeah. But I'm sure even in a lot of other mildly populated places in the U.S. It's just ridiculous how expensive they are. Um, what's the sense in the U.K.? Is there that same kind of hopelessness? Yeah, definitely. I think that for a lot of young people, it's something that they're not going to be able to achieve. There's, you know, a number of different issues with getting a mortgage, um, with, you know, renting in expensive places right now that's basically eating up um, you know, all of their kind of funds going towards housing. Um, I think in London, especially like some of the rental prices, like they're way, way more than what you would expect to be paying for that same property, um, you know, as a kind of mortgage price per month. Um, so I think that, you know, you end up losing hope. I think that a lot of young people are no longer seeing that as a viable target. And in the UK as well, there's a lot more inherited wealth that's kind of passed on through families. Um, so I think that, 
that makes the housing market even smaller because people will simply pass on um, what they have to their kids and there's much less of it to go around, especially in popular places like London. Um, and new housing isn't built you know, at a similar rate to the demand. So yeah, again, yeah. very, very macro, but uh, it kind of ties into the general doom and gloom that um, young people might yeah. be feeling about what they can afford. Yeah, and, and that's why it's funny to me that this Morgan Stanley thing frames it. There's even a quote where they're like, we see this as positive for the industry, talking about pe young people <laughs> living at home. I'm like, well, it might be positive for the industry. It doesn't feel very positive for the world that people like mm -hmm. have to live at home because it's so expensive to to not. Um, I It does make me wonder, to tie it back to the Zara and Shein thing, um, How I wonder how much longer we can keep pushing to the, the extremes kind of of fast fashion on one hand and luxury on the other. It kind of seems like the only brands that are doing really, really well right now in fashion are Shein and then like Tiffany. Um, you know, it's, and and there's, I know there's, you know, medium size or medium um, price point brands that are doing fine, but it, it, it does seem like the best performing people are on the kind of opposite ends. You either are going dirt cheap or you are one of the 1% who can, buy a Louis Vuitton bag or something. And for most people, they can't. So I don't know. I just don't know how sustainable that is, both for the industry or for, again, like society <laughs> as, mm. as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, all of the changes that are happening in the industry means that both these kind of consumer patterns, but also like legislation that's going to come into effect next year, um, will affect, you know, hopefully the way that consumers spend and the what they're spending on more importantly um so i fully expect that you know that extreme um tension going away a little bit more um but we'll see we'll see if it goes away uh so last thing i wanted to talk about was gucci um this week they announced that they are going to be at pity womo which i don't think they were at last year's um which is the men's fashion show in Milan um in february uh, notable to me because I think it's the first men's only or or any single gendered um, show that Gucci has done in three years, I think, was their last one. And it's also going to be their first show without Alessandro Michele. Um, instead, it's just going to be designed by kind of just the general Gucci design team. Um, so there's a couple interesting things there. First one I wanted to say is just I think it's cool to see a creative director list fashion show that's just designed by the the team of designers. Um, obviously, I know fashion is known for these kind of larger-than-life personalities like Alessandro Michele, who have these, you know, super specific visions and their fingerprints are all over. Obviously, they're still working with a team of designers always. I don't think there's any designer who just totally does everything by themselves. Um, but it's kind of cool to see a big brand just not have, you know, one person's kind of name slapped on something because they're all collective projects anyway. So I I, I think it's kind of cool to just have this collective design um, attributed collectively just to Gucci and to all the designers who work there. Um, would be cool to see some more of that. I But I feel like there's an appeal of having these specific personalities um, like Alessandro Michele and, you know, you can use them in marketing and stuff. And, you know, there, there's lots of advantages to that. But um, what do you have any thoughts on that idea of just kind of an anonymous collective of designers? I mean, I love that. I think that it's such a nice kind of idea to pull together creativity and just put it out there. You know, I think that 
a lot of the times, as you said, like the the creative director takes up like the leading role. Like I think in, in recent years, I've seen a couple of shows where they've actually had the whole team come out. I mean, Virgil Abloh was one of those designers who kind of did that, mm-hmm. um, where you would see, you know, the, the amount of kind of people and effort that goes into one collection. It's not just one person. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, especially from brands that are kind of looking to lead with values first, that that kind of collective appeal and showcasing, you know, the the real effort and the collective effort that goes into a collection. Um, I think that would be really interesting to see. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit tired of the whole one person coming out at the end of a collection um, and not acknowledging, which, you know, the fashion industry has a big problem with anyway, but not acknowledging the amount of effort and people that go into making a collection in the first place. Yeah, I actually was thinking about this recently, um, where so I feel like so much industry, I've, I've mentioned this um, on the podcast before or something like this, but I feel like so many other industries outside of fashion are are very much against the idea of a single creative eccentric person shaping everything. Um, in, in TV or entertainment, I feel like there's a move towards this very um, workshopped, focus grouped algorithm and data driven uh, stuff that's like this is would designed to appeal to everyone. It's not super specific. It's kind of this broad appeal. And luxury fashion feels like one of the few industries where it's good to have, or at least it's common to have, you know, one weird guy making all these weird decisions. And I think it's partially because they, because they're not trying to follow trends. They're trying to set trends. You know, that doesn't make sense for somebody like Gucci to be a slave to data and see like, what do people want and try to and try to give it to them? They want to decide what people want. Um, and so for that reason, I think that's part of the appeal for a luxury fashion house to have one weird guy making all the decisions. Um, but yeah, it is still cool, I think, to have a more of like a collective vision. Um, the other thing is this is, uh, like I said, the first show without Alessandra Michele, who kind of left abruptly, um, I think a month or two ago. Um, and it's also their first not co-ed show in a couple of years. Um, it's at Pity Womo, and Pity Womo is geared toward men, obviously. So I don't think there's too much to read into it. I don't want to say there's a move away from co-ed fashion or anything like that. Um, but it is notable, I think, just because Alessandra Michele was known for kind of blurring gender boundaries and, you know, playing with the idea of what men can wear and what women can wear and all that. Um, do you do you think there's anything to take away from that? Or is it kind of just, you know, a, not a coincidence, but it's just a function of them being at Pity Womo? I mean, I think that it helps the brand to have, you know, two separate kind of aesthetic ideas that are going out at the same time for one season. Um, you know, from like a marketing and a brand perspective as well, it gives them a new direction to go into. But, you know, just from the the catwalk perspective, I mean, you can bring in more people, different people into, um, you know, the design process into the audience. Like it's it's about kind of expanding that past maybe the typical Gucci family um, that I think a lot of the times was brought up in recent years. Like there was a specific kind of set of people who are around Alessandro um, and maybe that, you know, this is about pushing those boundaries and further. And I, I completely agree. I don't think this is in any way a move away from co-ed design. It's just about kind of expanding what that brand can be um, and, you know, taking it in a new direction. Yeah. Um, final thing. I, I don't even know if I have a, a super strong answer to this question, but um, any th- 
any thoughts that you have about where Gucci might go without Alessandro Michele? I mean, it's, I know it's hard to predict. Like I said, I don't even really know if I have a good answer for this, but he left very abruptly. He shaped the the brand, I thought, very specifically. He had such a very specific um, design style and also a specific kind of public personality. Um, I have no idea what they're going to do, like in terms of who they're going to get to fill that role, if they're going to go for someone similarly kind of outsized or maybe somebody uh, who's a little more muted. I, I I don't really know. Maybe there's there's no real way to decide, but I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, Alessandro brought something very specific to Gucci and his aesthetic has almost kind of created the brand. Um, you know, Gucci hasn't been doing brilliantly with sales. So I think that there's, so, there's going to be a... Um, a creative director or someone who's going to connect those two things. So both the creative vision and the design. Um, but I do think that Gucci, you know, just looking back at creative directors in the past, they've always had very strong um, kind of aesthetically creative directors. It's not something where you're just going to get a more muted person. I think it's going to be someone who's just going to take it um, and lead it in a different direction. And it just might be slightly more... Um, sales informed, let's just say, or maybe they'll have additional pieces to the collection, which might be a little bit more targeted towards, um, you know, the masses, um, which a lot of other brands have done, you know, Louis Vuitton. Um, I think that some of the other brands in the portfolio as well. Um, but yeah, I think that it needs a strong lead. I don't think it's something that, you know, you can kind of pass off with having someone a little bit more muted. I think Gucci's got, mm -hmm. you know, Gucci packs a punch. Yeah, it's like you said, they've got a, a specific um, kind of ethos now, this very bright and loud and, and yeah, specific. Um, okay, I don't want to drag on too long, but I, I do feel like it's uh, makes me think of the issue with Celine after Phoebe Philo left and Hedy Slaman came in and oh, yeah. totally changed kind of the vibe of the brand. And that really made some people unhappy. I mean, it ended up being okay. <laughs> He's still there and Selena's still doing great. Um, but there was definitely a backlash at just completely vibe shifting the brand just from one, for, you mm. know, from something it was known for to something completely different. So I think if Gucci suddenly became this understated, elegant, um, monochrome kind of brand, <laughs> that would be so strange. It's just not yeah. what they're known for. I think Tom um, Ford Gucci would not come back. No, definitely not. <laughs> Tom Ford Gucci, I don't think would be good. Um, all right, let's end it there. Zofia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. That really helps us out a lot. Um, also, don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast. You'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we can review episodes every Friday. Um, and also, you can subscribe to the Glossy Beauty Podcast uh, hosted by our colleagues at Glossy on the beauty team um, for the same thing, but geared for the beauty industry. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, this is the last Week in Review episode for the year. Um, we do have a special Year in Review episode coming up on December 28th. And then after that, you will not hear from uh, from us in Week in Review until January. But thank you so much for listening throughout this whole year. Zofia, thank you for being here. Thank you.